So here now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the Gospel of John, reading from the ninth chapter, verses 12 through 17. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. And may the Lord bless this great story, this great miracle worked by our Lord. Uh, May he illuminate it in our minds, not only see the physical, but the, the, the spiritual story behind this. Let's ask him for that illumination. Our dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give me the words this morning to clearly articulate what you've put on my heart, the story behind the story, if you will, the living parable that is before us, that we can see this as the model that it is, and we can learn the lessons that you're teaching to your apostles at this time, and the same lesson that we, as your apostles in this age, not apostles, but apostles that we should know as we go out into the world around us. We will give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, several years ago, we were blessed to uh, actually go to Israel and to walk throughout the area that uh, we're actually going to be talking about this morning, the area where this actually occurred. And one of the things that really struck us while we were there was just the beauty of the place. It was November, uh, but it was early on, so we had absolutely perfect weather the entire time we were there. But I was taken by the beauty of the sky. It was like this magnificent canopy that was over us all the time. You know, we get used to the haze that we live in, and we don't really see the rich blues of that sky. But the the sun warmed, it wasn't oppressive like the sun sometime is here, but it was warming and beautiful, and and we actually went to the areas where this would have happened, where the feeding of the 5,000 um, uh, actually occurred. And, and even though it was November and all the grass had turned ground, I mean brown, you could imagine what it looked like in the spring with the grass just being soft and supple, uh, having wildflowers all over the place, and then to imagine 10, 12, 15,000 people reclining in groups of 50 or 100 on that grass as Jesus, the very Son of God, the bread of life, is dividing, multiplying all of, of, of this bread and then passing it out to his disciples who then in turn passed it out to the people. 
And, and, and if you can imagine that scene in your mind, if you can see it in your mind's eye, what you are actually visualizing is the apostling dynamic, the dynamic between Jesus and his sent ones. Originally the apostles, but now us, the dynamic that exists within the church and the same dynamic that is the reason that we are here today. It has continued on down throughout all the generations, the relationship between the supernatural, miracle-working Son of God and the disciples that he has called to be the ones to take his message to a dying world. And after the world feasts upon that bread, that living bread that is Jesus, the leftovers that are there never intended to be consumed entirely by those the bread was shared with, but always to be shared with others in this kingdom that is indeed a sustainable kingdom. You are seeing in that vision the kingdom dynamic. And I can't help but look at that and imagine the way it will be when we're no longer in this world, but in the new heaven and the new earth. And we are at the wedding feast of the Lamb. I, I, I visualize it in the same way. I, I've never seen that great banquet that we will be invited to. I've never seen that in like a big hall made by human hands. I've, I've always seen it outside under the canopy of that magnificent sky in the table that the Lord himself made. And so I, I hope that I can bring out this dynamic this morning because it is so central to our understanding of who we are and what we have been called to do. Now, this idea of apostling, and I'll redescribe what that means in just a moment for those of you who don't know. But this idea of apostling is something that is really running as a theme through this part of Luke's gospel. We're going to go back to, and don't throw things at me because I'm going to continue to go back to that great parable that started this all out, the parable of the sower, because that's still with us. And it is still important in each part of this part of his gospel. But it started there with the idea of the sower taking the gospel, going into the world, sowing the seed so that the world could know the truth about the kingdom of God and the beauty that that represented. But then we saw after that almost an illustration of that principle as it was placed out as the disciples and Jesus got in the boat to go to the other side so that there could be one person literally saved that demoniac on the other side. And then we saw the cameo healings and throughout this gospel that a big part of the apostling effort is to authenticate the message and the messenger by working these miracles of healing, the demoniac in, in Gerasene and the woman with the flow of blood and Jairus and his daughter who was raised from the dead. And then most recently, just a couple of weeks ago, Jesus going now over to a desolate place near Bethsaida and the people coming to him in droves, thousands of them. And Jesus will spend all day ministering to them. But then also, very important to what we're going to look at this morning, 
Several weeks ago, we talked about when Jesus sent out the 12 and he sent them out apostling into the neighborhoods of Galilee. And we start to see a subtle shift. We start to see a shift. Now, Jesus is the apostle. Apostle is just a sent one. He's the apostle of heaven. God the Father sends his son to this world to proclaim the, 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 the message of the kingdom. Now, Jesus is passing that off to his apostles. Now, I'm going to call them apostlers quite often today. It's not because they're any less of apostles. There are 12 of them. We're going to lose one in Judas. Then Matthias and then later Paul are going to be added. This is a very specific group of men that God gave powers to be the foundation of his church. But their calling is our calling. We are sent ones. The great commission that Jesus gives us. So in a sense, we're apostlers. That's a made up word. And we go apostling. We're just going out to share the good news of the kingdom of God and to exhibit the mercy and the compassion that Jesus left us with to authenticate our message. We're still doing the same thing today. And it is something, it is a very vital aspect of what the church is. And so therefore, that's going to play into what we're going to see in our study this morning. Now, before I get started, there's a couple of things that I want to say just to kind of set the tone. Actually, I had had intended on going much deeper into this. I just don't have the time this morning. So I'm going to sort of push it off to the after church, a discussion about what's wrong with a very large part of the church today. And that is the de-supernaturalizing of Jesus. When we start this entire discussion about the apostling dynamic, we have to make sure that the Jesus that we are taking to the world is the Jesus that we see here. The miracle working, supernatural son of God, Jesus. We cannot de-supernatural him, supernaturalize him, water him down in any way. We have to make sure that that when we talk about these miracles in the scripture, we recognize that they're not just stories. They're not just myths. These are things that actually happened. And if you do not believe in a Jesus that can feed 10,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, then you just simply don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. That's where we're going to begin. But we'll get into that a little bit later on. But let, let, let me just say one more thing before we jump into the text. And, and that is that I'm going to present this today as a living parable. Now, if you're not familiar with that, you know that a parable is a story out of everyday life that usually has a single simple principle. But a living parable is a parable that actually happened. In other words, we're not questioning the historicity of this. 2,000 years ago, somewhere around that uh, area, in the, in the area that I just described in Galilee, Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish, and he fed 10, 12, 15,000 people with that. That actually happened. We're not questioning that. But there's also a, 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 a symbolic side of that, a figurative side. There's a parable. There's lessons to be learned through that event. And, and so I'm going to be jumping back and forth between 
the physical uh, feeding of 5,000 men, not including uh, women and children, and its spiritual symbolic meaning as a living parable. So with that said, let's jump into our text because we have quite a bit of it. Take a look at the 12th verse and we'll start there. Now, the day began to wear away. Now, that's a transition. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you may remember we talked about how Jesus' ministry was an unsanitized ministry. Sometimes we tend to sanitize it. We we don't realize how difficult it was and how serious the diseases were or how much time he spent actually doing this. Hours upon hours and days upon days. Well, this is a testimony to that. All day long, he's been preaching and teaching and healing. And now the day is beginning to come to its end. It also sets us up for the reason for the miracle. There's a reason that Jesus needed to to multiply this bread is because it is late in the day and the people do indeed need to be fed. But we're going to see the disciples sort of take on, I don't know, sort of a self-righteous, pious type of uh, approach. And, and they're going to inform Jesus that there's trouble brewing, that he needs to do something about it. Notice what they say there. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here In a desolate place. Now on the surface they may look to you like. Okay they're concerned about the people. But notice what they're doing. What they're doing is they're saying. Get rid of them. Send them away. Let them go fend for themselves. Right? This is not our problem. They should have shown up with food like this little boy. You know, he's like a boy scout. He's prepared. The rest of these people showed up with nothing. So send them away and let them take care of them. Of their needs themselves. Now, this is so wrong on so many different levels as far as these apostlers are concerned. First of all, it's kind of impertinent uh, right off the bat. I mean, they're reminding Jesus that he needs to be concerned about the welfare of these people when Jesus is up to his neck in that. And and they've already seen Jesus work so many miracles, uh, calming the winds and the waves, casting out demons, raising people from the dead, the miraculous catch. Surely they would have some faith that Jesus now is capable of handling this situation. But it's almost like they're saying, Jesus, this is going to get ugly if you don't do something because these people are hungry. And, and there's no place for them to eat. Well, if there's no place for them to eat, where are they going to buy food if, if they're in a desolate place? So you see, this seems to be just them deciding that we want to get these people out of here. And in that sense, it is indifferent. Now, what I didn't talk about earlier was how the people have denaturalized or desupernaturalized Jesus. They've naturalized him and nature is completely indifferent, could care less whether people are hungry or are fed. But Jesus is not indifferent. And this kingdom that he's establishing is not indifferent. And these disciples cannot be indifferent. They cannot simply say, okay, it's not our problem. You should have showed up with some bread. You didn't. So let's send them away and let them go and fend for themselves. And finally, it's ignorant. It is ignorant in the sense that they are ignorant of their calling. They have been called 
to make the welfare of these people, both physical and spiritual, their business. So there's no way that they can simply say, hey, go take off and let them fend for themselves. Because this is their business. And if they understood their calling, which they, of course, will, they're going to understand that Jesus is not indifferent at all. And, and his calling is the welfare of these people, and that's exactly what Jesus is going to let them know in the very next verse. Look in verse 13. But he said to them, Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the only miracle in the Bible that is carried in all four Gospels. That ought to tell you something. That ought to tell you that is very significant. That phrase that Jesus just says, Not only is it carried in all four Gospels, but it is word for word in all four Gospels. No, it's not even word for word. It's letter for letter. That is very rare that you'll find that in the Gospels because all four Gospels always approach things slightly differently. This phrase, you give them something to eat, is letter for letter in all four of the Gospels. So therefore, I think the Holy Spirit wants us to pay attention to what Jesus is saying. First of all, when he turns to his disciples, he says, I don't think that your solution is the right solution. So he tells them it's in the imperative. It's not a suggestion. It's not a request. He tells his disciples, you give them something to eat. It is your responsibility to make sure that these people are fed. You cannot send them off to hunt for themselves. And boy, does this ever make uh, an important statement when we start talking about the work of the church and the spiritual aspect of it. It is not for these people to go out and work out their own salvation. I called you and I send you to this purpose so you give them something to eat. However, what we're going to see something is this. Jesus has just issued a command to his apostles. Those that he has called to take his kingdom forward. He has just given them a command that they cannot possibly fulfill. And that's the very thing that the apostles are going to bring up to him. They're going to, going to explain why. They cannot fulfill this. Look what they say. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. Uh, Two objections that they give. First of all, we don't have the resources. And secondly, we don't have the money. Okay, that sound familiar? Okay, first of all, they have no resources. All we have is five loaves of bread Two fish, and and that didn't even belong to them. They absconded some little boy's lunch, you know. To 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 that was their total amount of resources. Now, I, just imagine that there's ten thousand people there. There's probably more, but if there's ten thousand people and he has five loaves of bread, let's say that each bread was a pound, where it's probably less because that's a big lunch for for a, a, a kid, you know. But nonetheless, let's just say each loaf of bread is a pound. Well, first of all, it would take a week for them to divide it in 10,000 different parts. 
But if you take five pounds of bread and divide it by 10,000, you end up with less than a quarter of a teaspoon a person. You know, when we pass around the plate of communion, you have those little, those little unleavened pieces of bread that are all crackled up into little small pieces. It's less than that. Okay. That's what the apostles are capable of doing. So Jesus hasn't said, I sure wish you would go and feed these people. He has said, you feed them. Okay. A direct command. That is impossible for them to accomplish with the resources that they have. And so they go beyond that and they say, well, uh, unless, of course, you want us to go and buy food for all these people. Does that sound a little sarcastic to you? Do you see a little bit of sarcasm in there? You're like, surely, are you really kidding us? Maybe you want us to go buy some food. Of course, they're in a desolate place. There's no place to buy that food. So outrageous is that idea that Luke doesn't even share with us the amount of money that they estimate that it would cost. Mark and John both say that it would cost, Philip says it would cost more than 200 denarii just to give everybody here a little bitty tiny bit. Now, I realize 200 denarii doesn't really strike home with us because that's not a denomination that we're, we're familiar with. So a denarii, as most of you do know, was the amount of money that would be paid to a common laborer for a day's work, sun up to sundown, or a Roman soldier. So if you were to calculate that out, 200 denarii would be about 33 weeks, allowing for a day off a week, which the Hebrews would take. And that's about two-thirds of a year. So about two-thirds of a year wages. Now, in 2020, the median household income in the United States was right around $65,000. So two-thirds of that is right around $42,000. So that's what they're talking about. It would take $42,000 for us to feed everyone just a little bit. Now, Maybe some of these health and wealth pastors that are making so much money have that kind of money to pull out of their pockets. But those women in chapter 8 who are paying for the ministry out of their means had nowhere near that amount of money. So uh, once again, once again, Jesus is making a statement. I command you to go and feed these people. And the disciples are saying, we, we can't do it. You have given us an impossible task. So let me just kind of rephrase this. Let me sort of put it in the context that I want to. Jesus has made it clear and bring it sort of into our realm to show the relevance of this. Jesus has just shared with his apostles, the people that he has called to expand the kingdom of God here on this earth. He has just given them a command that they have neither the resources, nor the money, nor the capability of fulfilling. And brothers and sisters, that's one vital aspect of the apostling dynamic. That the task that the Lord has given the church, the task that the Lord has given us, is impossible for us to accomplish on our own. That's the first thing we've got to learn if we're going to understand the dynamic that the Lord has given us as far as expanding his kingdom. It's a command, it's not an option, and it's impossible on our own. So Jesus now is going to take over and teach us all the lessons that we have to learn. Look in verse 14. For there were about 5,000 men 
And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. Now, the first thing that we learn is the scope of the dilemma. I've been sharing that with you. But here we hear that there are 5,000 men there on that occasion. Now, we know that it's not just men. We know that in the Hebrew context, they would count men only. But in this particular time, there would be men, women, and children. Remember the crowd started in Capernaum, ran around the side. That would be women and children too. In Bethsaida, they picked up more. We have this whole pilgrimage coming down, headed down to Jerusalem. Those were whole families. Remember Jesus when he was 12? Remember that there's a little boy there who they took his lunch? So in other words, the formula that we normally use when we're talking about how big is the crowd when all we know is the number of men is about one and a half times the number of men would be the number of women and children. So you add them together, that's how we get 15,000. Conservatively speaking, we round it down to 12,000 or even 10,000. So that's how we come up with the figure. There's 10,000 people out there at least that have to be fed with five loaves and two fish. So Jesus says to his disciples, have them all sit down. Interesting words, and this is one of the reasons I started you out with trying to get that image in our minds. The word for sit down is the word for recline. Now, we know that when they ate a feast, a banquet, like the banquet that Jesus was when he was there and the woman of ill repute came up behind him, they're all reclining at table. They're propped up on one elbow as they as they eat the food. So what Jesus says to his disciples is have the people recline in groups of 50. Now, He's not talking about a quick bite. He's not talking about eating on the run, you know. What he's talking about is a banquet. A feast is about to be served here. I mean, they're going to be filled to the brim. So have them recline in groups of 50 or 100, as Mark adds to it. Now, the reason for that, I think, one of the reasons is that this is going to be done in an orderly fashion. Brothers and sisters, the outreach, the evangelism, the apostling of the church is not a chaotic exercise. It is not going to be Jesus dividing the bread and being mobbed by a hungry crowd. Jesus tells his disciples, the apostles, you divide them into uh, 200 groups. If there's 10,000 people, 50 people for a group, That's 200 people. Get them all there and separate them. Now, instead of having to give bread and fish to every individual, all you have to do is take a basket and put it in their midst. Okay, so we have 12 disciples. That's 16 to 17 groups per disciple. Completely doable. This is going to be a meal with a plan. It's not going to be violence. People are not going to take the kingdom by violence here. It is not going to be rushing in and grabbing. This is orchestrated. This is thought out. This is a plan and a purpose. And who's the one who's done the plan and the purpose? It's God. It is Jesus. It is the the plan of the kingdom written before the foundations of the world were set. And it is done in an orderly, known fashion. Not willy-nilly, not randomly, not chaotically, and certainly not on the uh, the impetus of the people themselves. They're going to be fed. They're not going to get their own food. That's a very important part of the apostling 
dynamics. So anyway, Jesus has them all sit down on or, lie, or recline in these this beautiful scene, as hopefully we'll see it, under the canopy of that magnificent sky, on that green grass, and I see wildflowers all around, and it is in that scene that we see verse 16. So let's take a look at that first. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set to set before the crowds. Brothers and sisters, you have the entire apostling dynamic, the dynamic of the growth of the kingdom of God on earth right there in one verse. It's all there. First of all, we are reminded of the meager resources. All we have is five loaves of bread, barley loaves, and two fish. That's all that we have. Now, brothers and sisters, please pay attention to these kinds of things when you read these familiar stories. In the hands of that young boy, we don't read about him in Luke. John tells us about him. In the hands of that young boy, those resources were lunch for one child on one day. In the hands of the disciples, of the apostles, they're completely and totally inadequate. Not even a thimble full for each person can be gotten from that. But in the hands of Jesus, in the hands of the supernatural, miracle-working Son of God who, who multiplies that bread in a multitude of ways, those resources become completely and totally adequate. All that is needed to feed all of those people in Jesus' hand. We have to get the resources into the hands of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the church has tried for centuries to take the reins of the, of the apostling, to take the reins of who gets into the kingdom of God, to take it out of the hands of Jesus. If we do that, it's disastrous. We cannot do anything outside of the one who does the multiplication. And he shows us the way, doesn't he? What does he do? Does he look around at the people and around at his disciples? No. He turns his eyes to heaven and he looks to his father. And in his father's name. Because that's where the multiplication is going to come from. That's where the miracle is going to happen. That is where the source of this bread is going to be. It is going to be God himself. And so he calls and he blesses the food in the name of his father. Now, of course, I realize that this was done regularly at every meal. I hope you do it at your meal where you bless the food. The father of the household would have always taken the bread and broken it and, and blessed the food in God's name. But here it has special meaning because Jesus is showing this is where the division, this is the multiplication, this is where the miracle is going to come from. This is not something done with smoke and mirrors here. This is a bona fide miracle where God is going to take this bread and he is going to multiply it so that everyone in that place representing the field, representing the world, those people that, that God has prepared this bread for, every single last one of them is going to get it. But the multiplication does not come down here. It comes from up there. It is God and God alone who does the multiplications. Brothers and sisters, another major point of the apostling dynamic. There is only one 
who can change the heart. There's only one who can cause the, the, the gospel to take root. And that is God and that is God alone. That is his domain. And we need to leave that in his hands and stop trying to take it back ourselves. Now, some of you might be saying to me, Pastor Kirby, you're really kind of stretching this, aren't you? I mean, after all, we're talking about bread here and you're way off. You're talking about God's redemptive plan and you're talking about the, you know, the evangelism of the world and, and the regenerations of hearts. And, and where do you get all that? I mean, this is a beautiful story about how powerful Jesus is, how he, he multiplies bread. And if anything, it's telling us that we need to be benevolent towards the world and make sure they get the things that they need. Well, Just so you know that I'm not making this up, uh, let's step out of Luke for just a moment. I'm not going to stay there long. I like to stay within the passage that we're studying. But let's step out of Luke for just a bit and let's go over to John. And and, and John, in that great predestinarian sixth chapter of his, I mean, he really shows us what this is all about. No one comes to me unless the Father calls him and, and, and expresses these things. Now, in John... The sixth chapter starts out on the other side of the lake where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And then they try to make him a king. So Jesus goes up on the mountain. The disciples get in a boat, go into a storm. Jesus walks on water and he stops the storm. Once again, they make it back to the western side of the lake. The people wake up the next day. He's gone. They want another meal. So they come rushing around. They find him and they want lunch because he fed them dinner the night before. And Jesus says, you guys are missing the point. This is not about physical bread. This is not a one-off feeding. I'm showing you something of much greater importance. In fact, he puts it this way. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. In other words, we're not talking about physical bread here. This is not the end story. It's a parable. Yes, it happened, but we're talking about the spiritual bread, the bread that is the bread of life. Jesus goes on and he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We're talking about salvation here. We're talking about a bread that when it is eaten, in other words, when it is accepted, it becomes assimilated into the body, becomes part of the body, and Jesus becomes part of us, and we become part of him regenerated, born again in our souls. Jesus is going to go on and explain that. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Boy, that's hard language. Some of his disciples started to question whether or not they needed to follow him. And Jesus even makes it more graphic. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So in other words, the only reason I stepped out of Luke is just to show you I'm not making this up. Jesus himself places it in this context. The bread is the bread of life. It's the bread of eternity. It's the bread of the gospel. It's the bread of a reborn, regenerated, born again soul that can stand in the presence of God with my righteousness because of what I'm going to accomplish for them on the cross. So in other words, it is the entire battle plan, the kingdom strategy wrapped up into 
one statement. That is why it is so important that we leave the division of the bread in the hands of the only one who can do it. And that, once again, is the supernatural, miracle-working Son of God, Jesus. If we water him down, if we de-supernaturalize him, the entire apostling dynamic falls apart. But let's get to the rest of the dynamic. Notice what he does next. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Why did he do that? Learn to ask questions of Scripture. You know, when when you read something like this, don't just breeze over it. Okay, that's the way it was. When God creates the world in six days, ask, why did he do that? Why did he take so long? Why didn't he just say, boom, and it's all done? Why didn't Jesus work the miracle in just the same way? Why did he not just cause the bread and the fish to appear in the midst of each one of those 50 or 200 groups of 50? Because it would have been no more of a miracle than it was for him to divide it if he did it that way. Why didn't he call the angels from heaven to come down and do the distribution? Now, that would have really been cool, but it would not have been any more of a miracle than the way he did it. So if he gives them to his disciples, once again, something that is carried in all four Gospels. John leaves the disciples out, but he talks about the distribution. Something that is included in all of the Gospels. If he gave it to the disciples and he physically said, okay, I'm the divider, I'm the multiplier, and here... You take it and you feed the people. You see what he's doing? He's fulfilling his his command of the task. I'm giving you the ability. I'm enabling you to feed the people. So you take it. The reason that Jesus is giving it to his disciples is because that's the other part of the dynamic. The apostles are the ones who are the distribution system of the bread of life. Let me repeat that. And I use the word apostles, not just apostles. Those are given the responsibility of taking the kingdom of God forward are the distribution system so ordained of the bread of life. Jesus could have done this any way he wanted to. And yet he gave it to these apostles so that they would make the distribution. And that is the key of the apostling dynamic. Um, But before we finish, I've got more to say on that. Before I go, let's go ahead and finish the text because this last verse also is hugely significant. And, and, And they were all, I'm sorry, they all ate and were satisfied. So every single person there, all 10,000, 12,000, 15,000, whoever they were, they didn't just get a little crumb. They ate and were satisfied. That's a word that means they ate and were filled. They were, they were filled. And, 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 and the word has that connotation, satisfies a good translation, because the word doesn't just mean to be filled up when you're talking about food. It means to be filled up with that, that feeling of satisfaction that you get. You, you know when you eat a big meal like Thanksgiving 
And I'm not talking about those of you who overeat and are in misery when you finish your meal. I'm talking about the ones who have a nice meal and your stomach is full and you push yourself back from the table and, oh, at least for a few minutes you have this feeling of well-being, of satisfaction that comes over you. All's right with the world because you've got that nice full belly. But, oh, brothers and sisters, put that in its spiritual context. When you eat the bread of life, there is a satisfaction that comes comes over you because the one who is at enmity with God and is an enemy of God now has that beautiful Hebrew word shalom, peace, satisfaction, harmony and balance with God. That's what comes from eating the bread of life. And so therefore, when all had been filled and satisfied, that's not the end of it. That's not where it stops. Look at the rest of the verse. And what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. Twelve baskets. I'm not going to get into the meaning of twelve. It's kind of obvious because there's twelve apostles, you know. But twelve baskets are left over. After the people ate everything they could put in their mouths, there's still some left over. I think that there's several reasons for this. Once again, this is a detail that is included, not word for word, but it is included in all four of the Gospels. Very rare that you have a detail of a miracle that is included in all four Gospels. But several reasons, I think, for this. One is that we are learning that Jesus provides for his workers. Obviously, 12 baskets, 12 apostles, that they're, they're going to at least have part of the food that is left over. Jesus uh, provides for those he demands so much of. You, you may remember this all started after they went out and, and, and they, they went apostling on their own. They came back exhausted and Jesus said, let's go over to the other side and let you have a little rest. Well, the people ran over. They haven't had a rest yet. And in fact, all day long they've been at it, and now they've just fed 10,000, 12,000 people. You would think that they were exhausted, but here Jesus says that even though I demand so much out of my workers, I provide for them in a way that is so glorious and so much more. You get more than you started out with. How much bread did the apostles start the day out with? Zip. (laughs) Nothing. And they end up with a full basket. That's the kind of way that the Lord takes care of his people. Um, the second reason that I think that um, they uh, are, uh, are, are having a leftover. And once again, don't throw things at me. I'm going back to the parable of the sower. Because one of the things we learned when we studied that parable was that that was a sustainable farm. That part of the harvest, the grain, would be set aside until the next year so that it could be the next year's seed to sow. And in a, in, in a spiritual sense, that the kingdom is sustainable. That this year's harvest of converts will be next generation's sowers. And that's the reason and how the kingdom has sustained itself. Well, here's just another example of that sustaining. The people have everything that they need. They are filled to the brim. They are satisfied. And yet there's still broken pieces left over. 
to be shared with those who need it. And this is so important in the apostling dynamic. That gathering demoniac that Jesus left on the eastern side to go to the Decapolis, he's a broken piece of bread. That woman with a flow of blood that was telling everybody what Jesus had done for her, she's a piece of bread. Jairus and his daughter and his wife, all they have to do is walk through town and people see that little girl alive and they recognize that they are a broken piece of bread. Brothers and sisters, you may not realize it, but if you are the Lord's, you are one of those broken pieces of bread. You are here because this process sustains itself over and over again. There's enough for each of us to eat, but then there's also some left over to be shared. And that's the third point that I want to make. Brothers and sisters, I fear that just like the disciples, there's sort of an indifference that exist in the church today. You know, I'm saved and that's really great. I'm cared for. I'm going to go to that wedding feast of the Lamb and to hell with the rest of the world. And I use that word advisedly. So in other words, when this leftover is here, this food, this bread that is being shared was never intended to be totally consumed by the people who were there. There was always to be something left over. There's always to be the bread to share. And when you talk about the great gift that you have been given and I have been given to actually have the bread of life to be assimilated into Christ, to have that great gift that was never intended to be totally consumed by you. It was intended to be shared. That is one of the great lessons that we learn from this. Oh, brothers and sisters, I could go on and on. There are so many different wonderful ways that we can look at this great story. But I, I kind of just want to stay on this idea of apostling and the idea of the apostling dynamic. Because I think that that's one of the things that Luke is really bringing out that quite often you, you don't hear when you talk about this. There are several great lessons that we as a church, we as Christians need to learn. First and foremost is the fact that our Lord is the supernatural, not the natural, not explaining how he might have done this through natural means, which is an aberration if you really think about it, that they, they, they want to say that Jesus had a cave and he stocked the cave full of bread before this happened and that while he's saying he's dividing it, the disciples are slipping him bread behind it and he's, he's doing this. Well, let me tell you something. If that were true, then this book is a farce and we need to throw it out because it's full of lies. Because this book tells us that Jesus, the supernatural son of God, miraculously divided the bread. And if that didn't happen, and if your Jesus can't do that, you don't believe in the biblical Jesus. I mean, if your Jesus cannot take five loaves of bread and feed 10,000 people or 10 million or 50 million or 50 billion, then you don't know Jesus because Jesus is the son of God and there's nothing that is impossible for him. So that's where we start. 
That's where we begin. We don't de-supernaturalize him. We don't water him down. This is a bona fide miracle by the Son of God. And he is the one and the only one who can actually divide the bread that we are to distribute. Second thing that we learn from this is that to be indifferent is not an option for an apostle. To, to actually be indifferent and to think that, you know, something that's their problem, that's not ours. You know, I, I'm saved, so the rest of the world can literally go to hell as far as I'm concerned. And I'm sorry, but that seems to be the approach and the opinion of so many people in the church that I'm not concerned in anyone else. I'm totally indifferent. Let them go and fend for themselves and find their own way to Jesus. That's not what your calling is. That is simply not it. Jesus was not indifferent. Nature is indifferent. Nature does not care whether the rest of the world goes to hell. It does not care in the slightest bit. But Jesus is not a natural being. He is the supernatural son of God. And he told us about hell more than anyone else. And he is deeply concerned about the judgment that most people face. And if we are going to be his, we must also be just like that. We must be deeply concerned about the well-being of the people around us. Once again, let's go back. I'm sorry, but it's just the way it's done. Go back to the parable of the sower. If that sower is indifferent about his field, if he doesn't care whether or not it produces fruit or not, then his family starves the first year. There's no grain to replant. There's nothing that happens. And so therefore, there must be an intensity, a zeal. It must be important to them that that field bears fruit because their very life depends upon it. Now that said, brothers and sisters, we need to recognize that in that parable, Jesus himself told us that there are certain kinds of soils representing certain kinds of souls that simply will not germinate the seed, whether it's the path, whether it's the rocks, or whether it's the thorns. The seed will not germinate, and so therefore no fruit will come from that. The church needs to recognize that and stop trying to bring fruit out of the soils that can't produce it. That is the sovereign decision of God and not us. And so therefore, our concentration is on sowing in the good soil to get the maximum amount of of fruit that we can possibly get out of that. And that is not indifferent. Third thing that we learn about this is that we need to leave the multiplication in the hands of the one who can accomplish it. And I know that sounds like a total no-brainer, right? But then it wasn't more than a few centuries before the Roman Catholic Church began to try and take that property away from Jesus. They they instigated new ways that salvation and forgiveness could occur, whether it was the 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 uh, indulgences that the popes would give or whether it was the sacerdotalism of the priests, the different sacraments that brought about forgiveness. And so they invited a whole group of people into the church who by no means had ever tasted the bread of life. And they gave them little wafers and said, this is your forgiveness of sins. You're sacrificing Jesus all over again. 
of the 16th century came around and the reformers put it back the way it should have been. Wait a minute, no. We don't have any say in who enters the kingdom of God. This is the sovereign predestination and election of a sovereign God. He and he alone is the one who can multiply hearts and souls and feed the bread of life to them. We're the distribution system. But it wasn't even a hundred years that passed after that great revival that Jacobus Arminius came out and says, no, I'm sorry, it's not God alone. I have to have part of my own salvation. And through the efforts of people like John Wesley and others, that has become the predominant view of, of the evangelical church is that I'm the one that decides whether or not I want to have faith in Jesus. Well, what do you have in this in this this living parable? I'm not going to pull my doctrine from a parable, but it certainly illustrates it. Did Jesus take the five loaves and the two fish and walk around to the people and say, okay, how much faith do you have? Because I can't divide this unless you believe that I can. So show me your faith and then I'll give you some bread. Is that the way it worked? Absolutely not. It was Jesus that did the multiplication. It is Jesus who divides the bread. It is Jesus who sovereignly determines which soil will produce fruit. And we're the ones that are supposed to do the distribution. So let's let Jesus be Jesus. Let's let God be God. I mean, we're not doing our own job so well that we need to start stepping into his realm And try and decide who comes into the church and who doesn't. Because what you end up with, what you ended up with in medieval times, and what you end up with today in the vast majority of evangelical churches, you have churches full of pagans who have never tasted the bread of life. So therefore, we let Jesus be Jesus. And and fifthly, I think, I forgot my numbers, somewhere up there. We recognize that Jesus provides and enables us. In other words, he gives us an impossible command. One that we cannot possibly fulfill on our own. But the lesson is this. With me, you can do everything. When those resources are in my hands, anything is possible. Take them out of my hands and you fall flat. It's not like Jesus didn't tell us this. John 15, do you remember what he said there? Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears from much fruit. For apart from me you can do what? Nothing. I don't know how much clearer Jesus has to get to the church before we finally perk up and listen to it. With Jesus, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Without Jesus, we can't do anything. Jesus enables us to accomplish the command that he has given us so that we can do it in his name according to his good pleasure. So I just want to leave you with this. Let's go go back to Galilee. Let's go back to that beautiful scene of the rolling hills and the grass and the flowers. Except instead of 10,000 people, let's talk about 10 billion people. Maybe, I don't know, 10 million, 10 billion, 100 billion by the time this is over. 
when all the saints gather together in that beautiful place under that awesome sky and the Son of God, the bread of life, the light of the world, the living water gives us that great feast, that great wedding feast of the Lamb. But brothers and sisters, we've already experienced that. Sometimes I think we forget that the greatest gift that any human being can ever be given is that bread of life. It is that bread that Jesus has given us. And and, and it's our most precious possession. But brothers and sisters, let me leave you with this. Please, it was never intended to be all yours. It was never intended to be consumed by you. And then that was the end of it. It is not just so you can find a comfortable parking place and wait for Jesus to come home or wait for you to go for him. It was designed to be shared. It was designed to be freely shared because it has been freely shared with you. So let me just leave you with this. I know I've said I was going to leave you several times. I mean it this time. I was actually wondering yesterday, um, ah, how am I going to end this? Um, and Kay and I have, we read devotions in the morning, and, and we were reading this little book by J.R. Miller. I don't know if you've ever heard of J.R. Miller, very prolific writer, actually an American, wrote right at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. He's got a very nice little um, uh, devotional. And wouldn't you know it, as God would have it, the devotion was exactly on this subject. So let me leave you with some of the words of J.R. Miller who wrote and said, it's not having that makes man great. Let me repeat that. It's not having that makes man great. Men are great only in the measure in which they use what they have to bless others. We are God's stewards. And the gifts that come to us are his, not ours. And are to be used for him as he would use them himself. When we come to Christ's feet in consecration, we lay all that we have before him. He accepts our gifts, and then putting them back in our hands, he says, go now and use them in my name among the people. In other words, you give them something to eat. Amen? Father, we thank you for the beautiful pictures that you give us in Scripture. I know that words are inadequate to describe how intricately you have put this together. We're just in awe when we even get the slightest view of the way that you have put this book together to reveal yourself to us. And I thank you that your spirit is still here illuminating our minds, and I pray that He's in between the totally inadequate words that I've used and the understanding of the people that we will recognize how important this apostling dynamic is, how important it is to keep you in the forefront as the preeminent Christ, the supernatural Son of God, and not let anyone diminish you in any way, recognizing without you we cannot do anything but with you. It doesn't matter how small of a church we are. It doesn't matter what kind of resources we have. All that matters is that we have you and we give you the glory in Jesus' name.